when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Somewhere in this apartment, hidden among the collected detritus of a half dozen moves across ten years, a fossil record of phone chargers, power strips, and old utility bills, there lurks a massive orange spiral notebook filled with cryptic names, numbers, and abbreviations. It says helpful things like Silverstone GP M3 F Springs plus 2 nano na, uh, newtons per nanometer. Result, 2 minutes, 58 seconds, 0.338, which years later tells me that I stiffened the front springs of a BMW M3 at the Silverstone Grand Prix circuit and set a lap time of 2 minutes, 58 seconds and change. That was the voice of Rob Zachney <clears throat> from his piece, Evidence That You've Taken a Game a Little Too Seriously. I'm Danielle Riendo, and this is Waypoint Radio, episode 179. Joining me, and of course, Rob today, is Patrick Klepek. Hello. And we have a smaller crew today. Uh, Austin is on vacation, and Natalie's not feeling well, so you've got the three of us today, and we are going to be talking about games that we've maybe taken a little bit too seriously, and of course, the evidence uh, the uh, somewhat hilarious evidence in some cases that we have taken something a little too seriously. Of course, taking off of Rob's piece here, uh, which was very much about your obsession with these racing simulators. Rob, do you want to tell us a little bit, a little bit more about how you fell into this rabbit hole? I mean, the thing is, I can't tell you how I fell into it. Like, it just became a thing I started doing. Right? Like, it's one of those things you don't realize that, like your relationship to a thing has changed until it has changed extensively and you sort of take stock of it. Like I think it started to dawn on me that things were a little weird when um, it occurred to me that like it had been weeks since I actually like drove in a race and instead I had just been like tuning cars and uh, documenting every single change. And I was sort of like wondering, is this fun? (laughs) <laughs> and I wasn't sure, but it was what I was doing. Uh, it was rewarding. I don't know if it was fun. Uh, but I think what ended up happening was that a lot of sim games in particular, they sort of hint at you that there's this like right way to play them. And I think a lot of games do this. There's like, you can sort of muddle through and blunder forward and like find the, either with difficulty settings, you can make it easy for yourself, or you can just sort of, Uh, cheese your way through but like there's all these signposts that say like well there's a more authentic way to play this there's a more serious way to play this like mastery lies this way and i (laughs) had enough not going on in my life at the time i guess (laughs) to sort of decide yeah mastery that sounds that sounds good uh and so i like started uh reading up on like what all the settings on my car would change and like how that would affect handling. Uh, and then once I started doing that, I started to realize I'm just kind of fucking with, mm, it started with a really important insight. Oh. I realized I had no idea what I was doing. Like I was just <laughs> reaching in and like fucking with car setups and like had no real clue what was happening. And that was actually the important insight that I probably should have stuck with. Like I'm not, I'm not a professional race driver. Like I cannot do lap after lap and keep it within like, three tenths of a second like i'm not going to be that consistent uh but i convinced myself that like no what's really holding me back is that i'm not documenting my changes so that i can like systematize this and like gauge how i'm doing with each of these car setups and my times continue to continue to improve probably not because i was changing the car but because i had now raced the same track like 80 laps, 90, like by that point, yes, I was starting to get really consistent and like seeing measurable gains, but I was like, 
It's probably not the fact that this is like my 97th time around this circuit. It's probably those two Newtons that I added to the springs <laughs> that contributed to uh, my success. Uh, so I just kept documenting that shit and making an entire little fetish about it. I found it enti- like kind of weirdly restful and centering. Uh, we talked about this a little bit. Like yeah. racing games are good at that. Uh, and then having this little like way to this little like rabbit I was chasing of like the perfect ideal setup uh, made it even more satisfying to do that. And it wasn't until probably I'd filled that notebook where I started to think like it's a little weird, right? <laughs> Is this a little weird? Well, I mean, there's an entire practice called speed running. Uh, that is not necessarily about racing games, but that is that is absolutely what they do. I obviously I'm not a speedrunner by any uh, stretch of the imagination, uh, but I do watch speedrunning all day, every day. I kind of have speedruns going on in the background. I have streamers working on their speedruns, and you know they have a timer for every segment of the game, and they are obsessively going after these these kinds of things. So I, I feel like that's sort of a maybe you just had a speedrunning mentality before it was. Uh, necessarily super popular or common at that at that point and also of course a racing game a racing sim does uh foster that mentality right is it, it possible that rob to... is just weird <laughs> this is the real like question if we, if we can if we could like you you've done, you've done a wonderful job danielle of positioning all sorts of manners of probable explanations but we also have this other box of evidence of having worked with rob for a number of years now like maybe rob's just weird <laughs> maybe rob's just weird patrick I think, okay, why don't you present the evidence for maybe Rob's just weird? Now I've said, oh, these are reasonable things I, that Rob no, does. Not, I did not propose this because I came with a bundle of evidence to it. I was just proposing a theory. I'm not All sure right. if you know how discourse works in 2018, <laughs> but it does not require me to back up my assertions. Thank you. True. Rest True. my I case. I guess we are. Just like Paul Manafort's defense. Ad hominem. Oh. That ad hominem. That's what that oh. is. That's what it is. Doesn't count. I blocked you it. Know. Uh, no, he did, but like, he did a blocking motion right there. You can't see it on the radio, but he did a real blocking motion. Okay, right here. Okay, here the question would be: All right, if you look at your own like sort of psyche, or like, do you find evidence of you doing things similar to this in other parts of your life? Like, that's where I wonder if mm. is it is it specific to <gasps> games and sim games, or are like sim games? Do they scratch at something that you sort of end up doing? Like in other parts of your life, like when you go to when like you're going grocery shopping, like some people have a grocery list, but like you know, I, Rob may have like a Google spreadsheet that shows like his grocery <laughs> list from the last like two years, and so he can be more efficiently get down those aisles. Um. Okay. Well, no. Interestingly, mm-hmm. uh, this was probably also when my freelance finances were the most fucked up. There was another notebook. Oh. And it contained like recipes and then cost per serving. And oh. I was like, I'm yeah, going to systematize budgeting. One. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. But that hasn't completely gone away. Like, there is an element of, um, I don't know, like, optimization, I guess. Like, it's, yeah. not ju- it's not just the grocery list. It's the, like, no, I'm going to go once, and I'm going to bring home all the food we need for the next two weeks. And also, <laughs> I am going to, like, before I enter the store, chart the perfect path through the store so I don't have to double back for anything. I'm going to, it's like the seven bridges of Koenigsberg problem, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to go through every aisle once, exactly once, not going to cross my own path at any point, and proceed straight to checkout. Uh, yeah, I mean, Is there that are... real? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I don't like, but I don't hold myself to it. Like, if I forget, yeah, it's, it's not like a, it's not like a like a psychological like neuroses. It's more just like, oh, like the, it it turns like it it turns it into a game for something that's okay. like routine that you have to do every once you know or, t- or twice a month. Is like, oh, okay, here's like a yeah. especially when you go to the same shop, the same places, the same you're buying the same things over and over again. Yeah. Like, I I hear you on that. All right. Yeah. I mean, Maybe I would be both concerned. Of you are just weird. Maybe well, I don't. I can I do not. No, no one should take away from this podcast that I'm doing any of the shopping in my relationship. My wife is is a meticulous. So she has uh, uh, similar to you, not where like she's charting the perfect path. But my wife, um, because when we got started, we went to San Francisco. We had just absolutely no money. Like not yeah. not quite paycheck to paycheck, but certainly like pretty cl- like just a just just above that. And like yeah. never really. She you know she grew up. Uh, uh, um, with not a lot of money in the family, and I grew up not 
not like that, but my mother was just so unbelievably meticulous with her money because she came out of that, where it's just like, that's, yeah. I have that sort of ingrained and I've never quite gotten rid of that. And so my, not even though we're in a position where we're, we're doing pretty well financially uh, between the two of us, um, like there's always ways to optimize. So for her, her thing will be like, okay, like when she goes to different grocery stores, like thing, certain things are cheaper at different stores. Not necessarily mm-hmm. week to week, just like generally like oh hey like if you go to target like certain things are are cheaper there versus like the whole foods versus whatever and so she has like a very meticulous way of buying certain things at certain stores because those certain stores tend to generally offer them cheaper and so she has like her grocery optimizing down to like the efficiency of like these three stores she's going to hit up in a certain order because it's the fastest way to do it and the fastest way to to get the cheapest uh line of things especially for stuff that you're buying Every single week. So See, I'm hearing that and I'm like, that sounds like a great idea. What a system. <laughs> like, we get three grocery stores we kind of alternate between. There's like the one that's in walking distance. There's the one that's a short drive away. And then there's the Wegmans, which is a date. The Wegmans right. is a date experience. Like, MK, you and me, we're going to, we're going to the Weg, baby. You dress up we're, get, we're going. <laughs> you put on some cologne. Oh, we dress you down. Know. Oh, we dress down. There's no judgment at the Weg. <laughs> just throw on, just throw on whatever. Those look like pajama pants. It's fine. Socks don't, and don't fucking matter. Your money's yeah. green. Uh, but, uh, but yeah. So like, and and I, I'm sitting there. I'm like, you know, but I, I am certain there are things that are cheaper in one store versus the other. I know mm-hmm. this for a fact. But like, old me, and part of me still has this impulse. Is like, I should document that difference. I should like <laughs> write down like. How much did the cinnamon cost at, like, Hannaford versus the market basket? Like, I need to know. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- that – I think there's an appeal to uh, to optimism and – optimism, <laughs> Freudian slut. Well, well that's th- – de- t- t- 28 – come on, Rob. That is not the life that – that's the world we live in right now. <laughs> uh, optimization. Uh, uh-huh. there's, an, there's an appeal to that, and I think there's also an appeal of, like – all this quotidian bullshit that you have to go through each day. What if you could make it have some sort of meaning by like documenting it and having some sort of record that then you can turn into, I don't know, some useful future knowledge that will guide your decisions. There, there's an appeal to that because then you're always improving. You're always shaving a little, little extra time off. Always shaving a little money off your budget. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. I, I have this uh, weird thing where, uh, so once or twice a year, I have to do, like, a seven-hour drive, like, to visit some family. Um, and I'm usually the one driving because I don't, I, don't, I don't mind driving. And my wife takes care of our kid because that's a nightmare to have a kid for seven hours in a car where they can't move. Um, and so, you know, I've got the phone, you know, set up on the dashboard, you know, even though I'm, I'm going to be on the same road for you know roughly five six hours before we get off and navigate our way closer we're pretty much just going east west um i have this fascination with watching the time to arrival like go down like if i can go uh, not not like the arrival time it's the arrival time where i can actually shave a minute off if i'm like navigating the lanes correctly so i can maintain my speed instead of having to tap the brake and so every it's like probably roughly every like 20, 25 minutes, you end up shaving like roughly a minute off, I'd say is like what it ends up being. It's like every time you like get to like five or 10 minutes, like, I mean, like it's a, it's a joyous, like I'm, t- I'm like excited in the car saying like I shaved off five minutes, like <laughs> hallelujah, these last two and a half hours is, this is incredible. Um, it's, it, and it's like one of the few things I have to like maintain my sanity on that, on that seven hour drive. <laughs> I hear that. I I went on a cross-country road trip. It's nine years ago now where I went, you know, all the way from – we started in Vermont. We ended up in Portland, Oregon, and uh, and then back down to San Francisco. And then You wrote about this in that article about uh, Water water Tastes Like Wine, right? It was a a good piece about, like, your memories of this road trip. Yeah. People should go read it. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, And I remember taking a full hour off after a full day of driving, like, you know, like Mm -hmm. nine hours of driving. And I remember taking an hour off that arrival time to like the next stop or whatever it was. And I, I felt like a God, I felt like a driving God. (laughs) It was, it was great. So I hear that. And I think there's a lot to this sort of like daily optimization, especially as you were saying, Rob, of like, it gives you a goal in your, in the most boring, shitty parts of your life. Like it gives you something to strive for, something to take satisfaction in. And that's like, 
sort of a beautiful thing. And I think a lot of what's going on psychologically here with, with your racing games and maybe with your other sort of simier games, one of the main questions I sort of had here, I guess I'll, I'll talk a tiny bit about sort of some of my experiences with uh, obsessing over a game and, and the signs and symptoms of obsessing over a game. But I do want to get at the question of whether genre uh, kind of matters here and whether or not you are you are more likely to do this with certain genres, uh, because I know I sure am. Um, of course, Into the Breach is my obsession right now. I crossed the 600-hour mark last night, uh, and I am now – for me, it's it's less about documenting and less about uh, sort of, you know, keeping records than it is making my own goals or, or sort of mm-hmm. doing my own weird little thing and sort of creating goals. So I, I – you know, I got every achievement in this game months ago at this point and just could not stop playing it and literally think about this game in idle moments. Like – you know, I'll be lying there or sitting there doing something, and I'm like, oh, you know what feels really good? When you get those bugs to kill each other on the map. When you get, like, that perfect turn, and they start, you know, wailing on each other and, and that sort of thing. So I, I know I'm a little obsessed with the game when it, it invades my thoughts, first of all, and also where I just start making excuses to keep playing it. Uh, I definitely did this with Prey to some degree, where I was like, no, I need to read every email. I can't stop until I read every email in that game or if I see every single room. That's a pretty common one for me. Like, I want to go into every room that it is possible for a player to go into. Uh, So for me, it is like some weird combination of goals and like weird little details that I just feel like, you know, I've got I've got to have it all. Like, it's like a collection thing versus an optimization thing, which is. Whatever. It, you know, same shit, different day, right? It's just my way of loving something or being sort of obsessed with something as well. The I'm, notebook thing... Oh, sorry. No, I'm just curious, real quick. Yeah. Like, But when you go to a place, I'm curious, like, does that translate to, like, are you the person there with, the, like, the list of places you definitely want to hit and see? Like, are you... Do you turn into, like, vacation dad, right? No, Where that's the like, weird thing. I, um... Usually when I go to a place... I have a very uh, sort of bizarre and holistic uh, feeling towards it. It's more like I want to go for a run in this place. That is my main thing when I go to a new place on vacation. I need to feel it with my feet, which I know sounds very weird. uh, But there's something about running in a new place that really excites me and makes me happy. And I get very, very, very interested in it. And then I'll sort of compare those runs, even if it's on a similar route or the same exact route. I remember going to Tokyo and – running in Yoyogi Park like four or five times uh, just during a few days and just being like, and I saw something new every lap, you know, kind of things. So yeah, for me, it's like a weird running thing where I just love to explore and, and explore as much as I possibly can. Um, I'm, and I'm thinking back and I'm thinking I certainly did. Uh, I did the thing with Fez, believe it or not, where I, I definitely got so into that game that I translated all the language in a notebook. That was a thing that I absolutely did i think that's pretty common though because the game encouraged it it super did yeah i I, I have a notebook full of pages from fez but also you couldn't play that game like you could like you you just couldn't solve there was you couldn't keep certain things in your head or at least most people were not going to be able to keep certain things like that game was explicitly built where hey if you want to engage with this game on a certain level you're going to just kind of have to keep track of things in a way that is going beyond, especially because the game wasn't doing that in any sort of UI, right? It was deliberately right. not building a UI because it wanted you either to transpose that somewhere else, um, which is what most people did, including myself, to, you know, uh, put a bunch of stuff down um, in, a, in a notebook. Um, but I, I find it more interesting when you when people do that for games that don't necessarily encourage that sort of behavior. Because Fez is like, it's a puzzle game with cryptic things and languages. So it's like, of course you're right. going to write shit down. Um, you're going to write that. Whereas, yeah. whereas like an, an Into the Breach or something like that, or a Prey, where it's it's not ne- explicitly built all that, other than maybe achievements that are meant to kind of like guide you along and give you new reasons to do things in the world. Um, I think those end up being like pretty pretty different. The, and daily challenges, right? The rise of the daily challenge yeah. is an explicit reaction to games that people want to spend more time in, but have have exhausted whatever is in sort of the main campaign or the main thrust of uh, the original game. Yeah. But I would argue like Patrick, you were, you were saying like we were discussing this topic, like this entire topic, like it isn't you, like you don't engage with, with games this way, but like, it sounds to me like if the game is set up to make you engage with it on that level, 
if you like the game, you will follow it there. Like, you will become, like, Mr. Scratchpad and <laughs> Notes and uh, making connections. Yeah, that's true. I just tend to... Because I... I tend to not uh, mull on any one game for a particular length of time. I, I'm much more the kind of person that gets in, gets out, moves on to to the next thing. As you know, I mentioned before, it's just kind of a virtue of sort of the reporting that I do t- tends yeah. to like encourage me to move to a lot of different games very quickly. It, it just then, by nature of my my playing habits, I don't have the time to sort of invest in a game in in that way. The closest thing I could think of when I was trying to rack my head around it was. Uh, you know, I got very deep into Splunky uh, for a while um, uh, because I was trying, you know, I was doing the streaming challenge at, at Giant Bomb where I was like, hey, watch me learn Splunky together and this challenge will end when I get to uh, when I get to hell and I've, I've seen the secret ending of the game. Um, but on, on days where I wanted something different to do, I would also do the daily challenge. And in the daily challenge, uh, I, I was not good enough to compete on the actual sort of high score board with like anyone that was like you know reasonably uh skilled at that game so i was competing against people on my friends list but i didn't have many people this was long after the game had come out so i really didn't have that many people playing on the friends list but chris remo was playing constantly (laughs) like he was like me he was playing a lot of spelunky every single he was doing the daily challenge every single day i think he did it if i remember correctly he did the daily challenge like every day for like Several years, or, or yeah. at least like roughly a, a couple year years. Or so. I remember he posted on Twitter like he was kind of a little shaken when he finally like broke that streak. Yeah, like I remember, like, I, th- I believe I remember means. him telling us a story where like he was like out in the middle of somewhere where there was no internet, and he had he like dragged a laptop with, and then like went and found a place where he could get internet so he could just log in and basically fail the daily challenge, so he was, like <laughs> could keep the, keep the streak alive. I think he does that with like. Cross uh, crossword puzzles too, so maybe that's just a Chris Remo <laughs> thing yeah. that we're, we're pulling out here. But I found myself uh, there was actually a bot made on Twitter called uh, like uh, I think it was made by Phobwash, Steve Kim, who's done a lot of really amazing stuff on Twitter for Giant Bomb and Waypoint and other places. Um, it was a bot that would uh, scratch the Spelunky high score data and then uh, created like who won that day, Patrick or Chris. Um, and Chris was not really a part of this. Like he became aware of it eventually as people would like yell at him on Twitter, like, yo, you lost today. And he'd be like, a a part of what competition? Because I had built this own competition for myself in Spelunky. It's like, today I'm just going to try and beat Chris Remo. Fuck you, Chris Remo. I beat you today. And then people would be yelling at him saying, ha ha, you fucking lost this Spelunky to Patrick. Um, and eventually he kind of like was, was, uh, participating in the challenge. That's the closest I can think of. and, And that's, was partially because again I built that into my life, my, like my work life. Like that was a feature I was doing, and so then I was able to allow myself to fall into that. But in my personal life, when that's like divorced from that, when it's um, it's just it's usually not the case that I. Uh, I mean, I, I enjoy it. I wish I had more chances to do things like that, but it's just you not usually where I find myself spending the time where you can actually participate in that way. Go ahead, Rob. It looks like you had something. No, I was just, I was just thinking like. I, I would argue though that also seems parallel with like the the Mario Maker duel with uh, Riker. Sure, yeah. Like yeah. it seems to me like you do you, like it seems like you're fine in those places when you can get them if you can get a little like I don't know co- a little competition going a little a little test between you and not just the game but like someone else involved like that seems to be maybe the the like that seems to be a unifying factor for you. Uh, yeah, I find just, stream I find streaming helps. Like it's funny because yeah. I streamed all of my Dead Cell stuff for the first week. And then found it deflating to play the game at home, like, mm. by myself. Like, I found I was dying more. Like, I did, I mean, the whole joke of me streaming that game was that I was uh, the true gamer and I wasn't dying. You played better Because I was being, stream. like, very careful and meticulous. And then as soon as I came, was doing it by myself, I was dying and, like, just not paying nearly as much attention. It was just, like, an interesting uh, uh, contrast to, to the way I pr- perform on stream versus the way I perform when it's just me sitting in, in a room by myself. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can see part of what we're talking about here kind of feeding into that a little bit. I also really do appreciate the, uh, you're doing it for work, so it's almost like a, an excuse. It's like free, not free, but like a, oh no, there, there's a reason I'm doing this right here. Like there's there's like a, a psychological comfort in that, saying like, no, this is this is for work. So it's fine if I spend a little extra time here. This is for work. Where I... Um, I used to be like that until I started playing Into the Breach and it just warped my psyche in certain ways because I don't normally think of myself as, you know, the type of person who gets obsessed with a game. This is not 
I know it sounds weird. I know. I know. I know. This feels like a relatively new phenomenon for me. Like, in the last year or two, um, I obviously had this with Prey. It's just nothing has been to the degree of Into the Breach in my entire life. I don't think I've ever played a game for 600 hours before in my entire life. Even as a kid obsessing over Banjo-Kazooie or Mario 64, I'm sure I played hundreds of hours of those games. I sort of doubt that I've played 600 hours of those games. So this this feels like a, a weird metamorphosis for me. It feels very much like, oh, I found a thing that I didn't even know I loved, and I love it. Uh, and it does feel a little bit specific to this game, because I, I obviously really have enjoyed Mario and Rabbids, another awesome tactics game that I've played a lot of, but not 600 hours, right? This is like a new field for me. This is a whole new level. I, I wonder if I'm becoming you, Rob. I wonder if... Uh... <laughs> This is no. this is happening. You're no. like turn back. No, I'm I'm saying like it's it's beyond like that in particular is like way beyond where I get to with with strategy games. Like that is you're approaching uh like Sean Sands from GWJ like Game King type numbers. He's put in I think like uh 2400 hours in the EU4 uh at this Ooh. point uh something like that. Wow. Um yeah, like he's like uh, and he still may not be done with the game. Like Slay the Spire might have broken his uh, addiction a little bit, okay. but that is like I am a fucking dilettante when it comes to like a <laughs> lot of strategy and tactics games. So like I am not like I am not the sort of person whoever is like, yeah, I'm going to completely master this and try to get the perfect run. I will briefly tell myself I'm going to try to do that, and that's how I ruin my relationship with the game. Sure. Uh, in the end, I suspect that notebook ruined my relationship with those racing games. Like, I look back on that really fondly, but there was a point where I just became sort of aware of, like, this is starting to look very work-like, and I am preparing and preparing for a thing that I never let myself enjoy, which is just the, like, actual race itself. I'm always like, no, I must, I must perfect my setup. Uh, and it was getting in the way of, like, just enjoying the thing, and that sort of eventually sort of put me off those games uh so i will never i i never have that moment where i'm like hellbent on having the perfect run or uh there's parts of it i can identify with like the entire getting weirdly pig-headed about like a goal i completely made up to myself that like <laughs> has no re like the game isn't telling you to do this like literally the game is telling you not to do this in some ways uh, i'll give you an example for Whatever reason, I became bizarrely into Max Payne 2 uh, ages ago. Yeah. Like, I liked that game a lot. Uh, I liked it so much that I beat it on all the difficulty levels. And then uh, I think on the, one of the harder difficulty levels, they limit your number of saves uh, that they'll let you have for each level. So I was like, that seems like a good thing. It'll get rid of saves coming. It was still too easy. And then I was like, hardest difficulty... No bullet time and no bullet time dodge. And at that point, you're no longer playing Max Payne. That's the, th that's the thing. I was like, the point of that game is to, like, you know, John Woo style, like, soar through the air and yeah. just, like, blaze away. And I was like, but what if we didn't do that? <laughs> and I enjoyed that. It was, like, hard and it was a less good game because, like, I was basically ignoring the entire uh, reason the game existed. <laughs> the base mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, no, I just want to show I can do it. Uh, and you could because what you know you could do was very cheesily just sort of like strafe in and out from behind cover and just shoot things. Uh, it was probably a shitty way to play it, but at the time it made perfect sense. I was like, uh, I'm going to do that. And also, I think with that same run, I was like, and no saves, like clean runs through levels. Um, but that is a really unusual thing for me, and it never like certainly it doesn't hit the level of like six hundred. Well. That notebook might have had about 600 hours. Across those three games, probably yeah. there was about 600 hours of racing uh, involved. But yeah, that's about where that's about where I come down on it. Yeah, I, actually, bringing up Max Payne uh, is a really interesting and good segue into my main question that I've been thinking about, thinking about this topic, which is, 
are there just some types of games that do this to you or or not that will necessarily do it to you but have a higher likelihood of doing it to you and it sounds like patrick with some of your stuff obviously it is it is more around streaming it is really more around competition but it does sound like it's really difficult platformers that kind of can put you into at least some of this mind space and rob it sounds like for you obviously racing games that's the biggest one but max Payne 2 sounds like a little bit of an outlier there you know in third person it is third person right i actually Mm -hmm. didn't play much of those games okay third person action game right and i guess for me it's this one tactics game that i'm obsessed with but thinking about this and thinking about how it relates to speed running seems to imply that like this could happen with anything. Maybe there are some things that make it a little bit more likely to kind of fall into this sort of pattern, this sort of obsessive record-keeping kind of pattern. But I'm interested to see if uh, other people do this with, like, story-based games. And, of course, they do. There's people who speedrun things like Gone Home or, or speedrun things like Uncharted. Uncharted speedruns are fascinating, actually, uh, to watch. But I'm curious if if either of you had thoughts on this, on whether genre or type of game or type of play style like will affect this for you, or if you could see it affecting it for you. Hmm. I mean, it's definitely true that you know, yeah, I, that there is a certain type for me, um, but I I think that often has to do with the fact that um, those are games that are good for streaming, right? Like a, sure. a game that is that is that is good for streaming that I've had success with are games that evoke emotional and humorous reactions and deeply frustrating, challenging platformers uh, in which I know I'm good at those types of games and can eventually climb whatever mountain they put in front of me, like makes for a fun stream because it's not just watching someone get frustrated because they don't know what they're doing. It's watching someone get frustrated and learn how to eventually master the thing in front of them. So um, I think I find myself attracted to those because it's both entertaining for the audience and it's entertaining for for me and i know that if i put it enough time i can eventually figure out uh, what, whatever it is yeah sounds like there's a satisfaction in that right like uh, it happens rob you look deep in thought on this one <laughs> yeah i think if, i don't know when it's going to pop up but if a game gives me a type of problem where I can have a long, like, there's a phase of, like, analysis, planning, and then execution on that plan. Uh, that tends to be my shit. And it just depends on, like, what form. Like, because the, the thing that ties the Max Payne thing with the racing thing is that mm-hmm. the way, in that playthrough, those final playthroughs of Max Payne where I'm not using bullet time. I'd be sitting there, I knew the layouts of the rooms. Like, at that point, I knew pretty well what I was facing. Besides the third-person shooter, you can always sort of, like, you know, cheese the camera a little bit and, like, sort of, like, crane your neck around and get a view of what you're going into. And so I'd have that, like, moment, you know, outside the room where I'm like, okay, going to cross here. It's going to be, you know, one enemy at 10 o'clock, one at 2 o'clock, get the 10 o'clock, move to cover. And, like, and I'd be like, all right, ready, go, execute. And it was a lot of fun playing that way. And I think the racing games in, in, a, in a similar fashion, I would finish a run and I'd be thinking about like, okay, well, definitely like I was actually, there's a little bit of the car was actually being held back by, there was just a little too much like downforce. There's a little too much like uh, wing on it. I can actually make the car a little slipperier and it's going to be scarier to drive, but like it'll be faster down the straights and I just have to watch that one corner. Now, process that think about it remember that as you drive and if a game can do that for me that is something that i will pour tons and tons of time into uh i guess another game that um you know maybe danielle this is my into the breach uh and i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to hook you up with this uh unity of command um which is basically like are you a bad enough blitzkrieger uh, to uh, knock the Soviets out of the war as Germany in 1941. Now, admittedly, it's basically a Nazi speedrun game. So I there's, say, your... there's some connotations there that are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, look. Uh, look, we said Rob was weird. We established this early up, up front. Oh, like, brother, 
I'm not close to close to what counts as weird uh, in the <laughs> like World War II East Front like uh, oh community fantasy like, genre. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I'm I'm pretty like normcore uh, among okay. that crowd All right. uh, All right. in, in ways that uh, make me relieved to be to, to count myself as such. Uh, but the the thing is like so Operation Barbarossa, uh, huge war crime, internet huge international crime, very cool military operation. <laughs> Uh, and so it's like this, it's like basically a near impossible thing the Germans are trying to do and they come damn close to doing it. And the basic pitch for unity of command is like, can you do it faster and better and achieve all the like maximally difficult objectives, uh, set out for you. And it unfolds quickly enough that um, you're not playing any given scenario for too long. You're very quickly able to internalize like the lessons and go back and try it again and again and again. Now, if you want to play as the Soviets, there's a really good uh, expansion, the Red, Red Turn, that lets you play from their perspective. They control a little bit differently, so they're an interesting, um, they're an interesting problem uh, for you to come to grips with. It's very different from the uh, original set of scenarios. But that was another game where after a run, I'd sort of be, you know, you'd step away from the computer and sort of be sitting there being like, well, okay, but what am I going to do about those Soviet infantry in that swamp? Like, what, like, how do I get them out of my fucking way? And you just sort of work on that problem, work on that problem, and then you load up the scenario, you'd stare at the map for like, you ever seen Searching for Bobby Fischer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love that movie. Uh, I think the cinematographer on it, Conrad Hall, said it was uh, his, his favorite of the movies he'd worked on, uh, which is pretty wild, considering I think he was on The Godfather. Uh, but Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was. Yeah, yeah. he's... he's great cinematographer but there's this scene that i always love um it's when uh ben kingsley's character like teaches um josh young josh waitzkin to see the board basically and he does it by like throwing all the pieces aside and the only thing left is like the enemy king and he's like just you have to he says this thing like just visualize it remove all the complications until you see you see the opponent's king standing there alone like a guy under a streetlight. And I think that's a great way the movie captures those moments of breakthrough and insight where you see the problem, the whole problem in its entirety, and then how to deconstruct it and break through it. And I think that is the thing that I'm like, that, like if I get like, the scent of that in my nostrils, I will chase it. Doesn't matter the game. This is both amazing and exciting the part of my brain that's obsessed with Into the Breach and exciting the part of my brain that has been training ridiculously lately for my first tournament. Like, this is also jiu-jitsu, which is called uh, human chess all the time, sort of like chess with limbs. Basically. I thought human chess was the thing that supervillains did in their, like, compounds <laughs> where it's like you force people to play as the pieces and, like, the pawns have to strangle each other. It's true, actually, it's a different yeah. thing? You know, uh, slightly, very slightly, very slightly different thing. You know, we all have we all have a little bit of that going on, right? Wait, you don't have a human compound of chess people? I mean, it's aspirational at this point. Like, I plan on it at some point. Like, uh, we're a few years away from Rob's, It's in Rob's third notebook that he doesn't <laughs> right? uh, show his partner. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, he doesn't show that one off. <laughs> yeah, you know wow. who had it all figured out was the Red Queen. <laughs> oh. oh. On that note, uh, I think we should take a quick break and we'll come back for some questions. Uh, but <laughs> thanks, Red Queen. All right, we will be right back. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. All right, let's take a couple of questions here on this beautiful Friday. It is actually a very beautiful Friday. Pretty happy about it. Rob, I picked this one for you. This is a very Rob question. I guess we're having a very Rob episode today. 
I, uh, you know, yeah, yes, exactly. Just, it's very good. It's very good. Some days we have a Rob episode. You know, it's just like Star Trek when you have a, the focal point is on one character. It's, it's very nice. All right. This is from Andrew in Baltimore who writes in, Hey, Waypointers. I've been recently getting into the Total War series, and it's made me think a lot about, well, war. In Total War, I make a lot of strategic decisions that seem to be necessary as a commander, i.e. preemptive strikes, forcefully taking important geographical areas, etc., even though in a real-life scenario, I would be horrified by them. Obviously, these are just computer games, so the stakes are non-existent, and I'm usually trying to take, uh, take over the world anyway. But sometimes I'm just trying to hold on to what I have, and wars are necessary to beat back impending threats. It occurs to me that while I truly abhor war and violence, I could start to see how someone dispassionately reading a situation may decide it's a necessary option. Have war games or strategy games influenced how you think about war and international relations? Nice heavy one for you there, Rob. Hey, what are you thinking? Oh, boy. Um, I... <laughs> so I do this thing. I do the same thing. Like, I play these games suboptimally because, like... I try to respect treaties and tr- like genuinely try to avoid uh, turning on allies and becoming a giant war criminal. Like I know that like the character I played on Stellaris uh, streams, like aside <laughs> in general, yeah. like like when I'm actually playing these games for real, even if I go in saying like, "All right, time to be space Genghis Khan" or something, I will inevitably be like. Or I could build liberal international institutions and win peacefully. Uh, and I don't know. It's the the lately I've been trying to break myself of that habit and uh, you know remind myself that um, you know in these games, in the words of words of like Hans Morgenthau, you know we we meet under an empty sky from which the gods have departed, um, like oh. that. The point is to win. Like, everyone is playing by the same rules of just screw your neighbor, try to win the game uh, by any means necessary. Even the peaceful victory conditions still probably will require you to, at some point, find a way to utterly, like, kneecap somebody. Um, and I'm trying to, like, get better at following that logic uh, for for the games because, I guess... I don't know. It's, it's it's this weird thing. The narrative I tell myself is that at the end of the game, my people will be like, you know, no greater friend, no worse adversary, right? Like that is the character I would like to be at the end of these games. And I will try to find different ways of realizing that. But the lesson a lot of these games teach and something that definitely does remind me of a lot of my days as an, uh, you know, undergraduate IR theorist, basically, like somebody who studied that <laughs> shit, uh, yeah. that in these games, like trying to play by different rules than the rest of the actors in the system are operating under um, is actually unethical, uh, is, is actually like trying to be better than the world around you, um, at least in these games, ends up being like self-defeating and it is to the profit of the worst people and to the cost of the best, uh, or at least yeah. to the people that you were like sort of charged to lead. So it's this, it's a weird thing. Like there's, there's an inherently like rail politique, uh, like fascistic element to a lot of strategy games. And if you try to resist it, they do kind of end up like whispering in your ear, you know, well, you know, the game's the game. Yeah game is the game i just last night so i'm reading uh the third book in the expanse series and just last night there was something extremely extremely pointed towards this uh that sort of happens it's uh it's between sort of anna who's a preacher have you watched the third season of the expanse at all okay i actually haven't so i don't know how much anna is in the third season she's very much Uh, in it she's very much in it okay she has this moment uh where shit is going down i'm not going to spoil anything but bad shit is going down War is happening, battles are happening, and she sort of looks around at the chaos around her and she feels like, well, we're already a failure if we've gotten to this point, or if we've gotten to the point where where violence is going to happen. She kind of has this little quote. See, look how cute. I'm reading reading from a book. See, isn't this nice? All right. So I'll read this tiny little bit right here. It's very relevant. A history professor at university had once told her, violence is what people do when they run out of good ideas. 
It's attractive because it's simple, it's direct, it's almost always available as an option. When you can't think of a good rebuttal for your opponent's argument, you can always punch them in the face. And so she's this very, she's a preacher, she's very idealistic, she has her PhD in, in theology. Uh, she's a really interesting character. She's also queer. I don't know if she is in the show, but yep. she's married to a woman, has a has a baby with a woman, and like, that's always interesting to me uh, when, you know, sort of futuristic society religion uh, is queer inclusive. I'm like, oh, that's that's very nice. That's pretty cool. Uh, but anyway, she has this incredibly idealistic view of the world. And uh, later on in that scene, she sort of contends with the fact that, like, this is fucking happening, <laughs> whether she wants it to or not. So she kind of has to make the best of it, whether or not she's ideologically opposed to violence or not. It's it's happening around her. And the best she can do is try to basically inspire people to come together and, and do what she's good at, which is talking to people and sort of leveling with people and and you know, appealing to their best natures. That's very much what Anna is there to do. Uh, so this question struck me as also very uh, interesting in that, like, I hit that little passage last night reading the book, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, no easy answers, of course, as always, but um, it seemed relevant, so I, I yeah, I, it out. Yeah. The, thing, the other thing I do try to remind myself of is um, – in stories and especially in games, there's this idea of like hidden curricula. Uh, Troy Goodfellow talks about this yes. all the time. That like, so that little insight I just like offered up about like what these games teach. One of the ways they teach that is because you are trapped within a system that is designed to operate this way, right? Like that. Um, the lesson is kill or be killed. Uh, screw thy neighbor. But that is because somebody like specifically said this is going to be the overriding message of this game, and that is that is the para, like and that is the danger of like not being critical of the things you're playing or the things reading like it's very easy to like read that or or play that and be be like, mm, yeah, good insight about the world well, it's an insight about the world, but it's not necessarily like prescriptive it it's made like it is given a scenario that where it is made to seem very like accurate and prescriptive but somebody set very hard constraints around what is possible in that framework. Yeah, absolutely. Um, awesome. Our second question is a little lighter. Uh, and this one is from Joe. And uh, I'm actually really curious to hear, Patrick, what your thoughts are on this one. Cause this one's All right, fun. Joe, bring it the fuck on. Come on, Joe. Okay. It's a fun one. It's a fun one. I like this one. All right, Joe says, I'm catching up with the podcast, and I was reminded of the machine Miss Jacob in the hand... Uh, in Killer Seven book, uh, apparently Killer Seven has a book, and it's Machine Miss Jacob. Okay, I never played that game, so whatever. I didn't play Killer Seven either. So Miss oh, no. Jacob well, in the hand. Uh, we sure that's based on the, I, was, it was Killer Jacob. Seven popular enough to get a book based on it? I'm we really sure? interested. Well, he yeah, or they go on a little bit here, so I'll, I'll okay. read the rest. Right. So I guess this explains it a little better. Uh, sorry that I was editorializing there already because I was like, ah, oh, interesting. Uh, here we go. Miss Jacob is a machine described in the book as a device that can make predictions with increasing accuracy as each prediction comes true. This device is at the core of the story of Killer 7 as a rogue FBI agent is using mm. this machine to manipulate the Smith Syndicate, the player's characters, uh, to eliminate the game's enemies, the Heaven Smile. None of this is addressed at all in the main game. The only connecting tissue to these events is, is the save function made Samantha Sitbin. Uh, Yet the only, yet only the craziest non-Japanese-speaking fans of Suda Fifty One and his works are aware of this somewhat critical piece in understanding what exactly the heck is going on in this game. So the question I have is this: What is your favorite piece of extracurricular material that helps you understand something? Not just a favorite game, but even a, in a movie book or, or, or even like a phrase that's in a game or, or a movie that, like, some critical piece, or I guess it doesn't have to be critical, but something that's really, really just so tertiary to the game or the experience that helps you genuinely understand something about that world um i i'm really curious because you've played a lot of games patrick <laughs> yeah uh, i it's well curiously i don't um I, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with an example in in video games partially because i don't tend to get too invested in video game lore okay uh, to, you're not like that. natalie playing it for the lore i see no, like, I, I get into <laughs> stories and settings, but right. but I, I I I've I've yet to I can't think of a video game that I've played in which I other than like the stuff that I got into when I was a kid, where it's like I was you know super obsessed with like Final Fantasy VII, but that had less to do with Final Fantasy VII than it was that I had a whole summer and I had to fill that summer <laughs> with something, and I had Final sure. Fantasy VII in front of me. 
Um, but uh, sort of like outside of video games, like, you know, I've, you know, I use any excuse to, to bring up Lost, but like that was a show that like sort of was the, the our modern, the, the modern template for like building for storytelling in which extracurricular external uh, sources informed it not necessarily in the sense that you would go find some piece of lore hidden on a website although they did do things like that um that informed like the larger story uh that wasn't required for the day-to-day storytelling but maybe give you a better sense of the mechanics that informed the storytelling that was happening in front of you more was that i really enjoyed after every episode like there was a uh this uh, uh, writer, uh, Doc Jensen, he went by on Entertainment Weekly, and he did these long, like, deep dives into every episode where, like, I mean, he was writing, like, two, 3,000 words on every episode every week, like, these seven, eight-page things that went up on Entertainment Weekly that would, like, was very much a reaction to, like, what was that thing in the background? Like, I looked up, like, these Wikipedia entries and these books about it, and, uh, like, how does this maybe inform, like, the mythology of the island and what's going on? And so those became... Like an external source that I found like deeply satisfying and interesting and edifying to read that informed and enhanced my understanding of the base television show. Even if you could watch that base television show without any of this stuff, and like you'd be you'd be just fine. But as a sort of like super fan of the mythology, I was constantly looking for external sources. I mean, Lost is like I didn't really do that with any other TV show either. Like Lost is like remains like the one time that I became so enraptured that I was sort of doing every possible thing in and around it um, because for whatever reason that world just just really grabbed me nice Rob how about you um I don't know I think the grimoire and destiny is a clear example of like an interesting assembly of like tertiary lore and explanations for stuff that like didn't totally map one to one into the game which actually just like deepened the feeling that there are like all these mysteries and like hidden uh depths to destiny and then as destiny begins to like diverge even from kind of the roles they lay out in those lore cards and like destiny 2 becomes much more of a straightforward um the darkness what's the darkness <laughs> yeah exactly like uh, honestly i think that was the beginning of the we'll end we'll get around to that in the third game once we figured out how we retconned it back in yeah oh, and i think that was like the interesting part of this and i think it it sort of um it it parallels a little bit with uh like reasons why maybe nerds got angry at star wars uh in places <laughs> is cuz like so you have a pretty simple and straightforward like uh like referent object right like the star the original trilogy of star wars ain't that fucking deep like there are not that many like there are not that many real mysteries implied there's a few like names tossed out there that you can wonder like oh i wonder what that's about uh but really it's it's not that big uh, a universe and it doesn't really follow any clear rules uh not even internally and what happens there is there's this whole cottage industry of, uh, you know, expanded universe stuff, creating additional explanations and further backgrounding to this world and like greater context. Some of it's trash, but some of it's really, really good. And people like start to uh, really value just this entire like separate uh, category of knowledge about the universe. And then it all gets torn up. Uh, basically, as the prequels come along and demolish that, and a lot of the explanations turn out to be dumber than you can possibly have imagined. So uh, much worse. Yeah, exactly. And so it's it's one of those things where, like, in the absence of, like, a continuation of the main films, the universe becomes more interesting because they keep letting different authors come in and, like, play around in it, right? Different creators come in and tell a little story. The Dark Forces uh, series yes. tells a separate little story about Star Wars. Uh, you know, the list goes on. And Destiny as well is a really kind of silly shooter, right? You're, oh, we're Undying Guardians, and uh, somehow... We have to, we're the only people who can beat these incredibly powerful aliens. The trick is shooting them with automatic weapons, which humanity <laughs> was unable to do prior to the existence of the Guardians. Like, machine guns, who knew? Uh, but in the grimoire, there's this entire suggestion that, like, 
ah, but like, is this dumb story being told? Is this is this shallow little superhero uh, fable you're you're being spun? Uh, is it perhaps like much more interesting than is letting on? Like, is the universe maybe as deep and as richly textured as the skyboxes that surround you? Uh, you know, throughout that game. And the grimoire, you could sort of imagine that it was. Like, maybe none of what we're being told is the truth. Like, what's that speaker up to? Is the traveler really good? Because it seems to have brought a lot of trouble to our door and done fuck all to help. And the answer is, the grimoire is a holdover from what Destiny, like, was originally going to be. Like, it's it's vestigial. And now we're sort of in what the real plot of Destiny is. And it's, yeah, Immortals with Automatic Weapons. That's, <laughs> that's basically it. That's, that's Destiny. Uh, and it's this double-edged thing. Because as long as there's this like separate category of like lore and knowledge out there to tease and excite, it can make something pretty simple seem a lot more interesting. But then eventually you have to start like explaining what actually is going on and maybe start contradicting some of like the theories out there. And things can turn fast. Well, that's what makes Star Wars so fascinating because when Disney bought it and they did The Force Awakens, they explicitly disavowed – not disavowed, but they said starting with this, we're cutting off the extended That's universe. the Legends like, timeline that, or something like that. Right. Yep. And it was really fast – like like – from a corporate standpoint, it's like, well, you know, you could see the cynical view of doing that. But from, like, a creative standpoint, that was, like, a really interesting decision to say, okay, we're cutting this off. But what they didn't actually do was cut it off. They've just instead said, okay, that's just basically a whole rich history that we can pull from, right? Like, they brought Thrawn back in in uh, was Star Wars Rebels or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, and now um, in a book, and yeah. Yeah, and there's, like, elements of the extended universe that, like, you know, have cropped up in, in, in the mainline movies. But they basically just said, like, oh, we're just going to pull, like, the good stuff or the stuff we find interesting that, like, fits, you know, what we want to do going forward. But it's, like, a fascinating way to treat, like, you know, the the structure that has supported Star Wars, you know, in between the films. And in a lot of ways became Star Wars for, like, the, the stuff around the films became Star Wars for people in the absence of, like, a continued narrative through line in, in movies. And then for Disney to come in and say, all right, we're axing all that stuff, but we're bringing some of the stuff in and getting rid of most it was just a really interesting creative decision given the structure that star wars had for a number of decades yeah and i was one of those kids in every way Same. like who read every one of those damn books so and played a lot of the games and got I, mean, so I, into I only it. played i only read I, I read dark forces and i think i read shadows of the empire not so coincidentally because they were video games <laughs> and that was just <laughs> just an excuse to see more of the video game that i'd played. yeah i mean that's fair when you're 13 or 12 or whatever that's I read the Doom books, all right? You? Knee deep in the dead. The, there was great. a lot of sex uh, in those Doom books. I you said the Doom Dune books. books, and I was like, oh, there's the like Doom, Kevin no. J. Anderson. There's a lot like... of sex in those. Well, there's some. I don't know. I still there was have a lot a, of sex I, in the Doom books. Uh, I, I, um, I was shipped a copy of the Doom books uh, when someone was getting rid of them right. on Twitter. And then I, I tracked down the authors of the Doom books and pitched them on, hey... We should talk about these Doom books sometime when I get a chance to read them. <laughs> have not done that, but do have the email out there. So one day, one day. if I can find an excuse to reread some parts of these sex-filled demon books, I can ask them why they put so much sex in those Doom books. I'm so interested. <laughs> wow. I really am. I actually am, like, so invested in, in what happened there. So I hope to read that story one day. It's one Wait, day. like, it's, one like, day. basically Doom erotica? Is that how it comes off? Not like that, but it... <laughs> I just remember be like at the age that I read it on uh, I was reading those books in, on the bus to and from school in in middle school. Yeah. So right. you know, 6th 7th 8th grade. It was not content appropriate for <laughs> for me at that age, really. Um so I I may in my head be thinking like, man, they were fucking on every other page of that book. Which in, in reality, it may just be that, like there was one sex scene, but for like a 6th grader it was like, holy shit. Like this bend the antenna on the back of this to see if you can get HBO boobs to show up because your neighbor got the cable and it bleeds through if you're close enough to the neighbor that has the cable. What? I don't know what I'm talking about. That's the struggle. You know, that's the struggle when you're 12, right? Teenagers, teenage... Teenagers know what I'm talking about, bending the cable on the back No, not, the, the teenagers have no idea what the fuck you're talking about now. now. Like the, no, I'm saying not teenagers now. I mean oh, right, people right. that were 90s teens. teens. Yeah. yeah, 90s yeah. teens that had neighbors that had cable... 
they paid for like HBO and Showtime, and it's like maybe you could get what was the David Duchovny one? Oh, Red Shoes. Uh, yeah, Red Shoe Diaries to oh, come in, and yeah. you could. It was weird. You could like literally bend the cable and like get the signal to come in. Like any anyway. That's amazing. Sorry. That's sorry. incredible. Yep. Wow. Now yep. we know so much about your life, Patrick. We know so much. Yeah. How does this fit into the unified yeah. doom theory? <laughs> no. <laughs> Fuck, man. I am so excited for Doom Eternal. One, that game looks amazing. Yeah. Two, I am so excited that one of the pillars of the sequel is that, yo, we're building a Doom universe. I am I am here for it. Yes. That is fucking awesome. I guess on the slightest, quickest note, uh-huh. re Bethesda and universes, one of my favorite little tertiary things are the terrible fucking starbender sci-fi books in prey like these oh yeah, awful, yeah, yeah yeah atrocious just like shit fiction I, I just love like any fiction in any game like the, the fiction in that world is always very very fun for me to read and see like oh what does this say a little bit about this world although i think in this case it's just an excuse to write the most purple fucking prose like sci-fi fantasy bullshit that some some writer at arcane just got to have a goddamn field day with. it does a decent scary. job though of channeling the type of like drac you'd find in like the yes. sci-fi fantasy section of like borders back in the day like the it, stuff uh, that it was like <laughs> yep okay it's a licensed book it's a licensed series at this point and this is book number 72 written by our third tier writer here we go <laughs> yep our first two tiers are busy working on like some seer, you know, some yeah. like multi arc book. So here's, you know, here's John Turnpage with his, you know, one off piece of shit. It's delightful. I'll, I'll say this: yeah. there was so it was useful for me getting into uh, the Star Wars canon as it was construct- constructed back then, because it was. The first moment I realized that canon was kind of bullshit and, like, unsustainable. Because, like, Kevin J. Anderson shows up early in that series and starts... Like, two things happen. There's a really dumb, uh, like... There's this Dark Horse comic series that I think makes a lot of questionable creative decisions. Um, And then Kevin J. Anderson shows up and also makes a really real travesty of a trilogy uh it's it's the standard kevin g anderson shit there is no actual through line there's just a series of like vaguely exciting events that happen and they're sort of constructed into an overarching story it's terrible uh and so like early on that expanded universe just goes off the deep end and as a kid i was like this seems really hard to square with the good stuff like it seems bad but it's real because it's canon so like all this happened but it seems totally inconsistent with, like, everything we know about the universe and these characters. I'll just pretend it didn't happen because a lot of <laughs> subsequent authors also seem to be ignoring it. Uh, and it was, like, useful and instructive because it was, like, the moment I realized, yeah, you know what? It's okay if stuff that takes place in a universe or an IP you like is bad. You don't have to, like, let it taint your enjoyment of the thing you can just look at it and be like yep they sucked that one they sucked that one right out just just <laughs> totally hosed it uh kevin j anderson you done it again uh and he would do it again with uh with dune by the way um if you ever read those oh, books boy. see you learned the lesson that like the you know star wars nerds who got very mad and vote with their wallets didn't maybe didn't learn that maybe not everything's for you and that's okay. I suspect maybe and you can yeah. move on with life. I know? suspect those guys are bitter in part because they were like, "No, all this is real," and I made myself love those <laughs> books. Like I, like I memorized all the shit that shows up in the Dark Horse comic series. Yeah, give me that Galaxy Gun. I've got the technical manual for that. And oh then Disney comes along and is like, "Yeah, this is shit. Out the window. All of it. It's all garbage." And like. What are you going to do? Now a woman like spent, has a sword. Yeah. <laughs> you spent 30 yep. years building your identity around like Kevin J. Anderson's uh, Kessel Spice Spider. Uh, that, oh, the uh, Spice Spider. Oh, yeah. No, oh. like Han Solo goes to Kessel and gets <laughs> press ganged into becoming a Kessel Spice miner. It turns out the Kessel Spice is um, woven by some sort of spider monster and uh, it hunts the miners and it's bad. 
there's definitely in one of those stories of the et cetera, et cetera, there's definitely like a very a very Volcel uh Boba Fett who who is very upset about drug use and sex and sexuality and it is fucking wild oh, yeah. to go back to. Wait, is, is that in the Tales wild. of the Bounty Hunters books? Is that yes, the one where I like think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I was always yep. more of a Dengar guy myself. I felt bad for that dude. Yeah, same. I the other Tales of the Bounty Hunters stories, I remember them being kind of fucking awesome. Some of them. That great. one, even as a kid, I was like, wow, he's really And that's the one they end on. It's weird. You're like, it wait, is. Boba Fett <laughs> is like a religious zealot. And yeah. but at the same time it's a very interesting story because it takes place out of like chronology. Like it's sort yeah. of a um uh what's the way to put it? It's like him and Han Solo encountering each other at the end of their lives, basically, and you have no idea where or when you are in the Star Wars chronology by the yeah, end. It's, it's a weird one. Yeah, it's yeah. it's kind of cool. It's 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 bad, but like kind of interesting as well. It's it is fascinating. Mm. Yeah, if you can track that down, it's wild to experience that one as an adult. And I remember even being a kid, being like, "Wait, he's is he like a monk? Like, is that what we're going for here?" He's like, like a defrocked monk, right? They were like, "Whoa, you're a little weird of. kid," and he was like, "Yeah, mm, my morality, I will enforce it with a gun." It's very what much an that. Asshole. It makes so much sense. It really does. All right. I guess that's see I knew that one would inspire some 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 good discussion. <laughs> I think uh that is uh that is it for us today, unless you have more uh Boba Fett thoughts. Um uh, do I have more Boba Fett thoughts? Yeah, you bet your ass I have more That's another but we podcast. Need to go. Yes. We're gonna do another we're gonna do a Boba Fett cast one day. That'll be great. You know, you heard it here, kids. We point one oh one Boba Fett. Can't wait. Maybe that'll be a whole series. I can't promise that, but I can promise you that you can send questions to gamingadvice.com with the subject question. And I can also promise you that we will do shoutouts to Boen for letting us use his track, Miss You, off of the EP Pale Machine. We are on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice. We're on YouTube at Waypoint Vice. We're on twitch.tv slash Waypoint. And you can read everything we do at waypoint.vice.com. Rob, where can we find you online with your Boba Fett thoughts? At Rob Zachney. Awesome. Patrick, where can we find you online with your... Find me at Patrick Kloppik. All right, you can find me at Danielle R.I. if you care to. And, of course, I will remind you to please be good and be good at it. Kip Durham sucks. (laughs) Fuck that guy. Yeah, he did. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.